Let's again understand who He is. We saw a little bit of this last week when we were in Philippians. First of all, Paul did not have an easy life. You just got to remember that. He had experienced much persecution and hardship in ministry. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, you don't have to turn there, but it says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, again, just at the beginning of this book, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. I don't want you to be ignorant of that. I mean, I despaired even of life itself. Burdened beyond measure. I don't know, have you ever been burdened beyond measure? Uh, second, uh, right here in, the, in this particular chapter, look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side. Hard-pressed, yet not crushed. In other words, completely destroyed. Perplexed, but not in despair, like I'm just going to give up. Persecuted, but not forsaken. God's still on my side. You know, God is for us. Struck down, not destroyed. Yes, hard, but not the final ten, you know, out. Paul did not have an easy life. Again, this passage refers to extensive affliction, mistreatment, and rejection. Constant danger, constant threat. See, it's one thing for a believer who has faced minimal trials to say, don't lose heart. But here's Paul, the, the aged Paul by this point, who says, don't lose heart. He's gone through much. But that, that's the man who needs to be the encourager to us. Not the person who has had no trials. It's the person who has had trials. So again, he didn't have an easy life. Number two, Paul was not a new Christian. By this point, he's... He's been a Christian for around 20 years. So he's a mature, growing Christian. Obviously, he's the apostle. He's written many of the New Testament books. He had been ministering to churches. He had already gone through two of his missionary uh, uh, trips. In fact, 2 Corinthians, this book right here, was written on his third journey. So he's already gone through two. He's on his third journey. He's encouraging a group of people who, quite honestly, was very, very... Uh, negative towards them. Very, uh, he was, they were they were the troubled child. Okay, they were the troubled church. He had to write to them at least four times. We have two of which are part of the Holy Scriptures. Again, new Christians usually find great excitement in the Christian life, but it is the older Christians who have faced many trials and hardships who have their excitement and zeal for God sometimes zapped. It's not the new one. I mean, sometimes a new Christian does get zapped because they get saved thinking everything is going to be easy now, right? That, that could be a real problem. That's false, by the way, right? When you say that's false, you get saved, doesn't mean all your problems are gone. But then it's the old Christian. The Christian's been around for a while. The Christian who may have been um, in leadership as a teacher, been in a church, been in maybe two churches because for whatever reason. But as their Christian life gets going, I mean, continues on, and they, they get tired. They get tired. And I've seen this. They get, well, the word is cynical. Cynical with God, cynical with others. I don't want to connect anymore. I don't want to serve. And, and they, they may not say exactly, but the bottom line is they were hurt. Something happened. 
But here is Paul, many years into the faith, with many trials, many hardships, and is still excited about the things of God that he is able to do through Paul. He says, listen, don't lose heart. Again, we're going to see in a moment. I mean, he had a, man, he had so many trials. He was a mature Christian who still had the fire in his soul. That's why I like that picture of Bill and, and Ruby. Still the fire at 78. Still the fire. Still believed that God was using him and God was going to use people. That he was using him to reach people. And Number three, Paul was not superhuman. See, at this point you might say, but you're talking about the great apostle. I mean, you know. And somehow we think he's non-emotional. He's stoic. Maybe he was aloof, distant. More like a machine than anything else. You ever think of Paul's machine? I think of Paul as like a machine sometimes. Just moves forward, you know. He's like the second gear type person. First gear, you know. Like a bulldozer, you know. A plotter, we would call him. And he, he was a plotter, but he wasn't detached. In fact, in uh, this book, in uh, chapter 123, it says, Moreover, I call God as my witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Why? But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again in sorrow. I'm not going to come again in sorrow, which means he sorrowed. He had that emotion. Verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart. That's, that's huge, anguish. I wrote to you, with many tears, that not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Sorrow, I grieve, I have anguish, I have affliction in my heart, but I love you. Now, now think about that, but I love you. The love which I have so abundant for you. You cause me hurt. You cause me pain. But I love you. What does that describe? That describes a mature Christian right there. That describes a mature Christian. See, it's the mature Christian that understands we still all sin. We still even at times hurt each other. And yet a mature Christian says, but I know that God is sovereign. I know God is in control. I know God has a program. I know God wants me to serve and minister to others. So you don't lose heart. Again, he had great love. He had great emotion. He was not superhuman. He was not mechanical. He had feelings. Sometimes we've, we, we don't let our feelings out, our emotions. You know, we almost guard them like somehow that's not spiritual. Yet we're made emotional people. And finally, he was not alone. See, he wasn't just by himself. Look at verse 1. Notice, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. (coughs) That's three we's. Verse 2, you see, we and ourselves. Verse 16, we do not lose heart. It's, It's not just I, it's not me. It's we. Very, very important. He had a as we would say, a band of brothers. Like one guy said this, up to hundred names, up to hundred names are associated with Paul in the New Testament, of which around thirty six could be considered close partners and fellow laborers. When you when you read Paul, you read up to hundred names of other people that are intersecting his life, thirty six of which are very close. He um, he worked in group. 
It wasn't just about himself. He understood the concept, I'm not an island, that this is a body. He's not alone. So he's, and now he's also saying, we. See, this is very important. So he's saying, listen, we don't lose. We're not growing weary. We don't lose hope. Uh, it's not just me. It's, it's us. We, because, by the way, who you hang with is going to have a great effect on your life, isn't it? You hang with people that are down in the dumps and always negative and always see the, half, the cup half empty, then what are you going to become? But if you see and if you hang with and if you minister with people who say, you know what, yeah, we're not perfect, but God is in control, God is changing, God is moving, God has a plan. By the way, that's why I would encourage you, if you start hearing gossip, criticism, I'm saying of this church or the leadership, I'm, I'm not putting ourselves up as like, well, no, you can't ever criticize. See the person. Because you, that type of situation can really easily breed discouragement in a group of people. You have a problem with someone. If you haven't told them, don't tell someone else, right? Isn't that a good way to If you haven't told them, don't go to someone else. And if you are the ones that are receiving, hearing, you stop them and say, you're not sinful. Well, first question is, have you told them? Well, no, I don't think he would, I don't think she would listen. Well, don't go any farther because you're going to sin. In fact, you have such an issue, you're willing to bring it up to me. I'm going to check back with you in a week to see if you have gone to that person because I know that person will listen to you. In fact, if that person doesn't listen to you, I'll go with you to go talk to that person. You see how we get biblical that way? Otherwise, we just have our little group and, well, I don't want to go tell them. They're probably not going to listen. But, no but. Oh, but you want to destroy the work of God? Is that what you want to do? Because I tell you what, it's easy to destroy the work of God, isn't it? I mean, I don't mean the sovereign work God's going to have. But, I mean, in a church, it's easy to cause problems. It's easy to see um, dissension grow and faction grow. God wants us to work towards unity. We're not perfect. There's going to be issues. I would hope that any leader, any person that's in you know, any type of a leadership position would be willing to hear. If they're not willing to hear, they shouldn't be there in the first place. We should be open and communicate because we need to be a body. In fact, next week we start a new series on Romans 12. And I think that's one of the best pictures, the whole chapter. I want to go through the whole chapter. And I really want to go through the whole chapter for not only to see Romans 12, and plus it's a good uh, start-off point as we, then we're going to get into prophecy in the summer. I told you that already. But I really want to make Romans 12 like the, like this is the poster chapter, as it were, of, of what this church should look like. It's, it's like one of the best chapters on discipleship. What does a, a church look like? How does it operate? What should we think? But one of the things is that we be unified. Anyways, he was not alone. Well, let's look a little bit farther. We only have a... The time is ticking. Let's look at Paul's secret for endurance. And we see that, again, starting in verse 1, what is, what is the secret? Again, we need to learn to think this way and to meditate and to ponder these four principles. First of all, Paul focused, and I want to emphasize that. Paul focused on the ministry God had given him. Since we have this ministry, we. Now again, it's group, he's in group, but it's a ministry that was given by God to him, to them. The word ministry is diakonai. And we get deacon. But the idea is service. 
This is what God has given to me to serve. Now, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we find out Paul, you know, Paul was continually amazed that though, though he was so anti-God before salvation, 1 Timothy 1.13 says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I was proud, I was arrogant, I was blaspheming God. But he said this, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I did it ignorantly. And yet, even though I was those things, verse 12, the verse before that, he says, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me, he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. None of us, I don't believe, were persecuted before salvation. None of us were blasphemers to the extent that Paul was. And yet Paul looks back and he says, listen, look at what Christ did for me, though, though I was that. Let me just break those verbs down real quicker, those words down, excuse me, real quick. First of all, he enabled me. In other words, he empowered me. Grace was given to him. Uh, The Spirit of God was given to him. That's what he means by empowering grace. He enabled me. He saved me, but then he enabled me. And But these things are applicable to all of us. He is enabling us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have come to a point of understanding your sin and God's holiness and Christ's sacrifice and you've received Christ, at that moment you have been given a gift. You've been given an enabling before God. And Paul says, you know, I know that this enablement is not something I'm just supposed to pull off on my own. It's something that God does through me. So he enabled me. Second of all, he counted me faithful. I want to say this very quickly. Not inherently trustworthy. Rather, God considered Paul faithful because God made him faithful. Do you get the difference? See, you could look at my life and point out cracks and sins and places that I have failed. But what I'm saying is God has made me what I need to be, and God is making you what you need to be. And you could say, but, and go back to the major crack and sin in your life, and yet Paul says, wait a second here. He counted me faithful, not inherently trustworthy. He is making me what I need to be. So that's entrusting grace. You go from empowering grace to entrusting grace. And then finally, employing grace, which is putting me into the ministry. He established me. And again, that word ministry there is the word service. Sure, Paul was an apostle, but we are all called to ministry in some form. In fact, when he uses that word ministry, he's humbled himself at that point. And the basic thing is this, that, man, isn't it great? God saved me, he placed me, he empowers me, and he puts me moving in the right direction. Are you being used by God today? See, Paul did not get get discouraged because he knew that God had given him a ministry and that excited him. Ministry can be very difficult at times. I I think about it so so much more as I'm growing older and older that ministry is so fragile. Ministry is so hard and difficult, and yet it's so rewarding and such a privilege. But it is hard, and it is fragile. Anytime you're working with sinful people, that's just how it's going to be. And you yourself are sinful. 
But yet Paul had an excitement, even though he was hurt, even in, by the Corinthians. In fact, of all the churches, Corinth had hurt him the deepest, the, the hardest. And yet he's telling them, listen, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not lost hope. And this is, I think, one of the reasons he's saying it. You may think because of all your hurts against me, like the, like the ministry is now just like crumbling. It's not true. In fact, I think he's saying it this way. And, and even though you did hurt me, God is more than sufficient, and the ministry is going on, so why don't you get on board and let's minister together? You know how sometimes someone might hurt you, and then they don't want to have, you know, like, well, I've hurt them so bad, I just can't seem to get in fellowship. I think Paul's telling them all this just to say, listen, get on board. I've learned, you've learned, let's go together. I tell you, that's a true sort, that's a true mature Christians, plural. When one has hurt another, and they get their differences Settled, and they work together to accomplish the same ministry. Isn't that a great thought? So Paul is just saying, you know, hey, let's work together. Let's serve together. I was made a minister, as he said in Colossians. I'm dependent on God's grace. He's put me into ministry. He's called you into the gospel, for the gospel. Let's get together. Let's work together. So let's serve. And you might say, well, where do I serve? And I'm not talking just spiritual gifts here. I mean, if you're a Christian, you need to be, as Matthew says, salt of the world, right? Salt in the world. You, you need to make a difference in the world. You need to be light. If you're a wife, learn to serve your husband. Actually, what Ephesians says is learn to respect him. That's not easy. Boy, as I've counseled over years, I think that is one of the most difficult things in marriage. Right there. For the wife to respect or I evaluate her husband. Let's face it, he's not perfect, and she's not either. And I, I just, and yet that seems to be the thing that, that is so often lacking. And ask yourself, if you're a wife, do you, do you value and respect your husband? Not just do you submit. That's, that's the one, the verb that we usually go after, but the real thing is, do you really value? Because you can submit and not value. Yeah, I'll do it. You're just a piece of trash, but I'll do it. How about husbands? Love your wives. Yeah, lead them. That might, some would say, well, that's easy. No, no, love them. Sacrificially serve them. That's service. Parents, bringing up your kids, not just bringing up your kids and throwing down the cereal at them, but in the nurture and admission of the Lord, that's hard. It takes a lot of patience, a lot of grace. That's, that's part of service. But then again, that's also partly, I mean, another area we serve one another, as Roman, or Corinthians says, for the common good, is by using our spiritual gifts. So again, Paul saw this whole ministry thing, and he said, you know, God has gifted me in these different areas. I'm sure he would also throw in, look at these men that are around me and I'm supposed to be serving and being their mentor and they are my friend and they are also serving me by being examples to me. And he saw ministry just as a privilege. Just as a great privilege. And I'll tell you, when you see ministry as a privilege, and, and again, I'm not talking rose-colored glasses. I can see where the problems are in my own life and in our lives. But when you can see it as a privilege, that gives you energy. You don't lose heart. I remember Jerry Falwell one time about said about John Rawlings, that he was continuing 
an aggressive global ministry. He was looking at the guy. He said, this guy is continuing a, a aggressive global ministry because the rolling ministry was around the globe. And the guy was 88 when he said it. I mean, this guy did not lose heart. So Paul knew he had been given something. How about number two? Paul focused on God's mercy towards him. Second part of verse one, as we have received mercy. Mercy is God withholding of the judgment that the sinner deserves. And we're going to be looking at that more in detail starting next week, Romans 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the what? mercies of God, right? So we're going to be looking at mercy. But I will say this as it pertains to this subject. How often do we lose heart because we think that we are not getting what we deserve? See, we always think of the, you know, the good thing. You know, like the, I deserve respect. I deserve to be heard. I deserve to be valued. And sometimes that's in the context of Christianity and church, or it might be in the family, or I don't know. But, you know, we did not get, what did we, what did we deserve? <laughs> we deserve damnation. That's what we deserve. One guy said this, whether it is few problems, less criticism, more success in our ministry, or more, appreci- or more appreciation, we often allow our minds to dwell on the things that we feel entitled to, but that we are not receiving. When we are deprived of our perceived rights, we become discouraged and lose heart because we are not thinking right. Let me say that last part. Because we are not thinking right. See, we need to think right. We're servants. Actually, Jesus in the in the is really the, the clearer word is we are slaves of Christ. Slaves had no rights. The only thing the slave was ever concerned about, in fact, whenever you see like in the Bible, like a lot of the versions will say bond servant, that means slave, dulios, dulio. Just, just means that you're just, the only thing the slave ever concerned himself with is what? What does the master want me to do? It had nothing to do with rights. So really when you're looking at mercy, you know, focused on God's mercy, we have to look at, well, who are we in Christ? We are his slaves. We are his servants. Thankfully, though, Romans says we are his sons. Abraham brought in. We are fellow heirs. I mean, there's a lot more than just saying slave. But, but again, we need to get the first one right. So have you been beat up a little bit lately? Maybe by the world, by your family, by your kids, by other Christians, by leadership, whatever. You're growing a little discouraged, frustrated. I don't know if I want to do that ministry anymore. It just seems so hard. Just doesn't, people don't seem to really appreciate what I'm doing. Wait a second. I've been given mercy. I have been given mercy. I should be either in hell or on my way to. And yet, everything Scripture says points, obviously, no. I'm not going to. I have imputed righteousness. I am secure in Christ. I've been given mercy. Therefore, it should create all kinds of willingness to work for Christ. Not for my salvation, for out of love for him and his people. How about the third one? Look at verse 7. He focused on God's purpose for hardship. Now we get into the purpose issue. I've already read it. But look at the first part. It says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power, now catch this, may be of God, not of us. 
See, Paul knew that God had a purpose for every trial, every problem. And we could look at a lot of them. We won't look at any of them. Only to say this, there is always a purpose in our hardship. And this, and this is being played out in this treasure in earthen... See, this treasure of who Christ is in salvation is in this earthen vessel, <laughs> clay pot. Why? Because that's how God designed it so that his power and not our power would be seen. Do you get the point? Treasure earthen vessels that the excellence of the, excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God will be seen through us because he will put us in situations where normally that earthen broken vessel wouldn't respond that way. Let's face it, an earthen vessel, clay pot, weren't very durable easily cracked, easily broke, easily chipped, quickly thrown out. I mean, really. And that's actually kind of how our, well, that's what our bodies, right? Oh, you might be 20 and think that body's going to last like 20 when you're 70, but it doesn't happen that way. And actually, if you're older, the older you are, the more you understand the earthen vessel principle, don't you? But wait a second. Verse 16 says, again, the outer man, inner man. But there's coming a day when we get a new body. There's coming a day when perfection will be ours. But again, our bodies experience many problems as we grow older. And yet the treasure is here. Because God wants to glorify himself, and the way he does it is through weak, chipped, broken vessels. And I'm saying in the, even in the spiritual sense. See, he wants to show himself strong. Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12. And he said to me, my, this is after Paul prayed to have his, the thorn in the flesh removed. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why was he willing to boast in his infirmity, in his weakness, in all the hurts, and all the frustrations? Because the power of Christ would rest upon me. And therefore... Jesus Christ, God himself, would get the glory. So what could really discourage you now becomes an encouragement. The purpose of hardships. God is glorified. So in end, we have to train ourselves, train your thinking to think this way, that it's through the weakness, through being fragile, will be being broken that the power of Christ and his glory will shine. He will get the glory. Now again, Paul did not always know why, but he did know that all things did work together for good. See, he didn't always know the why. In other words, just because he was going through a trial, didn't know he actually knew the why of the trial. Was it to mature? Was it to purify? Was you know? But he did know that all things did work together for good. So again, we need to know the purpose. If we want to run well, run strong, run hard, know the purpose for hardship, for the glory of God. And then finally, verses 16 to 18, he focused on his future. He focused on his future. Therefore, you know, underline that, therefore, we do not lose heart. He, he repeats himself, therefore, and now he just gives a summary. Again, Paul was training his mind. See, up to this point, he's, and, and, and if you go to the whole, you know, the, the book, he, 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 is, he looked at them, he said, listen, I didn't come with you to sorrow. You know, I, I want to, I, I, 
I want to show you the ministry. I want to show you the hardship I've endured. But now it's like he's looking back and he's saying, now let me just give you like a summary. This is what, this is what's in my mind. Okay? First of all, spiritual strength. Verse 16. He treasured spiritual strength over physical vigor. Even though when or since, even though, that's when or since, even since, even though, our outward man, again, verse 7, our earthen vessel, is perishing. I mean, again, the outward man is perishing. That can be pretty discouraging. That is very discouraging for some people. And that can even put you in the ditch for some people, right? If your mind is on, well, I've got to keep this outer body going. Even though our outward man is perishing, it's being corrupted. One guy said this, from the moment you're born, you start to corrupt. What's interesting, too, and I, I meant to get it, but the, the information on how your cells are reproduced and, and, like, your body becomes new, I think, every 30 days, is it? It seems like something like that. I mean, it's just like, you know, I mean, everything is dying, you know, all the cells, and then they're being replaced, thankfully. But yet, the inward man is being renewed day by day. So life's troubles and trials serve to build inner strength. That, that's what he's getting at here. Yes, my old, the, the body is, is getting frail. And as time goes on, it gets frail. But the inner man... And so wait, the outer is the frail, but yet that works for the inner man. Because as we look at that, we say, wait a second, what is more important? The outer that we can't salvage or the inner man that's going to live forever, right? So that actually helps the process. The trials, the troubles actually help us to build the inner man. It drives believers to be humble and dependent on God. It's not that you give up on the outer man. It's, that you, it's not that you don't treat it and you just forget it and just, uh, you know, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But you say, you know what, let's put our time in what really matters, what's going to last for eternity. Or you could say it this way, suffering energizes spiritual growth. And sometimes that suffering even is, you know, as far as the body. So we have a perishable body, but then we can go right over to Corinthians 15 and say, but someday we'll have a glorified body. And you've set your eyes on that. Again, it's, it's not to say, man, if, if tomorrow I was told I only have two months to live, well, that, that would be hard. I hope you, some of you call me and say, Lord, or John, remember what the Lord says. That, you know, you're going to have a, well, yeah, be gentle with me. Bring me along. But help me to get my mind set on what's right. Spiritual strength. That's what he's, the first thing he's focused on. Second, heavenly reward for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, we could, we won't. Because at times, 2 Corinthians 11 says some of the things that Paul found himself... You know, he, he said he had hardship in this passage. He was, he was perplexed, persecuted. But then over in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, you actually see it laid out. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the sea, in perils among the brethren, in weariness and toil and sleepless and fasting and hunger and all these different things. I mean, he shows us you know, all the things he had gone through. And yet all that, now look at 
He's writing 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4. In chapter 11, he's going to be naming all those, you know, being stoned and left for dead and beaten and everything else. And yet, what does he call it? For our light affliction. I would say that's pretty severe. But not from Paul's point of view. It was constant, but his perspective is it was light. It was insignificant. Why? Because it didn't determine his eternity. Okay? It didn't determine his eternity. And it also helped towards his eternal reward. (laughs) Because the second part says, it's just for a moment, might be 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, maybe even 100 years. My one grandmother lived to be 100. How old was your mother when she died? A hundred? A hundred and five almost. Almost. We've got to add that almost. So 104 plus. But still, that's a moment compared to eternity. James says life is a vapor. But look at this. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's the suffering that was producing because he was responding properly to them eternal reward. Suffering and sacrifice works towards our eternal destiny, the reward. is working for, in fact, a New American says, beyond all comparison. The word is, is where we get our word hyperbole, i.e. this. It's out of proportion. Our suffering produces a weight of glory, of reward, which is beyond the possibility of overstatement or exaggeration. That's what he's getting at. Yes, I have been beat. Yes, I have been stoned, Paul would say. But it's like the exaggerated amount of my reward in heaven is, shows this to be so insignificant. If only we could get that as a perspective. It's, it's like you can't even... He would say this way. With everything I just went through, and I'm going to tell you in chapter 11 what I went through, it's like an exaggerated point to say that that is significant in comparison to the weight of glory that's waiting for me as soon as I die. So again, suffering worked for Paul's advantage because he saw it as temporal eternal. Okay. And then finally, eternal realities. So he we went from heavenly reward, the weight of glory, to eternal realities. While, verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, seen and unseen. The things which are seen are temporary, the things which are not seen are eternal. That word look is the key. It means to aim, to focus. It's, it's the word, not just a general glance, but to study, to set your mind and your focus on it. Okay? It's a discipline to be able to focus on the things that are not seen versus the things that are seen, the things that are eternal versus the things that are temporary. We have to focus our attention on what matters. By the way, this focusing is not automatic. The things which are seen are the things of this world. It's, it's having the world's ideas, it's world, the world's value system, the world's standards, the world's achievement as what I need to do. It's looking at the world and saying I need to amass wealth, I need to have a prominent name, a prominent career. That's what's seen. And he's saying, listen, I'm not looking at the things that are seen. If you looked at my life and at the things that are seen, you might say that Paul was a failure. He just had a band of brothers going around to a bunch of churches who weren't even perfect. But he said, my thing is, wait, I'm looking at God. That's the things that are not seen. 
God, the triune God. That's the, the big idea right there. The things that are not seen, the eternal, is who God is. And yet, God and his program and his plan and his people, that's what I'm focused on. That's what Paul would say. And I trust that I'm focused on. I trust that's what you're focused on. You want to run the race well and don't grow weary? Then you're going to be looking at the things that are not seen. You're going to be looking at the weight of glory. That's what you're going to have to focus on. But it's not automatic. It's not automatic. You have to say, no, that's right. That's exactly right. And I'm so glad he put that word look because it means, you know, you have got to focus in discipline and self-control. And why do we get it in the Word of God? Because it shows us the things that are not seen. It reminds us, yes, your affliction is but a moment and it's light. By the way, that suffering might also have to do with not just the church, but what's given to you. Your family, your marriage, your children, the people you're with, your work situation. You may be called to suffer, but suffer in the way that, like this, not only just for Christ's sake, but to suffer in a way that pleases Christ, i.e., stay faithful, stay honoring to Him. I'm not saying that every time it's using His name and proclaiming Him, that's part of it, but it's, it's doing the right thing when given a hard situation. The, the, place want, the place you work wants you to be deceptive and lie. No, Christ is truthful. I will tell the truth. I may have to suffer. My job may not be given to me. My, uh, my um, promotion may not be mine, but I'm suffering for Christ. Why? Because I want to be truthful. Why? Because he is truthful. You know, it plays out in hundreds and hundreds of different ways. I stay faithful to my wife. I stay faithful to my kids. I don't jump ship. Why? Because Christ is faithful to me. And marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. That's the way we suffer. So again, we look at the things that are not seen. In summary, losing heart is a result of unbiblical thinking. Paul thought correctly about the importance of his ministry, the mercy that had been given to him, the eternal purpose that God had for his problems, and the fact that his outer man was going to be (laughs) falling apart but the inner man could be renewed. Isn't that a great thought? That this is not all that there is. We want to run the race well. I remember a story about a Tanzanian runner. Hours behind the runner in front of him. Hours. Catch this. Hours behind the runner in front of him. The last marathoner finally entered the Olympic Stadium. By that time, the drama, the day's events was almost over, and most of the spectators had gone home. This athlete's story, however, was still being played out. Limping into the arena, the Tanzanian runner grimaced with every step, his knee bleeding and bandaged from the earlier fall. His ragged appearance immediately caught the attention of the remaining crowd who cheered him onto the finish line. Why did he stay in the race? What made him endure his injuries to the end? When asked these questions later, he replied this, My country did not send me 7,000 miles away to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Let's be confident in him who began the good work in us, right? That we will end. Why? Because he is with us during the entire process. Let's stand as we worship the King of Kings. I didn't come 7,000 miles to start the race. Came it to, to finish it. Lord wants to work in your life, right? But remember, to not lose heart, it's your focus. It's your focus on who you are looking at. Who are you running behind, as it were? 
Are you following Christ? But also, how do you deal with hardship? Hard people and hard circumstances. How do you deal with it? What is the expectation? Because that's what dries up true joy, true vigor to serving Christ. Got to keep an internalist perspective. And I trust that's where you're at. But I would say this. Let me give you a moment as we bow our heads right now. If you have found yourself losing heart, then I would ask that you would go before the Lord, ask him to search your heart, expose the things that need to be exposed, confess the things that need to be confessed, and recommit yourself to following after him. Oh, I've got my eyes on people. I've got my eyes on my hard circumstances. No, no, I've got to get my eyes on you, Lord. Let's go before him. Father, thank you that, as the scripture says, we can be very confident in the fact that as you have begun the good work, you will finish it in our lives. Father, thank you for many who we can look at, both that have gone before us, but even people who are living today. We pray a blessing on Bill and Ruby. Thank you for their faithfulness over these many years. And yet it would be so easy for me to to put up many pictures of people right in this church who have, who have run very well, though have had hard circumstances and hard people to deal with in their life. Father, help us to gain encouragement by the body of believers here at Alfred Allman to hang with those who have run well because we know that friends matter. Band of brothers we need to stay encouraged. Lord, again, we want to run well. We don't want to be discouraged. At times it comes and it puts us back on praying ground perhaps that we haven't been on and to realize that we hum- need to be humble before you and dependent on you. But Lord, give us wisdom. Please give us wisdom to know how to, to run that race well. And as we get our eyes off periodically, convict us so we get our eyes back on you. Father, again, we thank you that you have called us to a purpose to end well. So we take confidence in that. We ask that you would just guide us along the process for your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.